not asking um, questions about how they can come alongside of the cooks. And um, I want to encourage you guys. Um, we are working towards putting something together, and our goal is to help them in the short term and in the long term. So we're hoping that in the days to come, that their long-term needs will become more and more available. Um, we're looking at um, some options so that we as a church can fund some of the, the, the bills that they are not able to meet. Um, so we're going to give you information on that. Please um, feel free to communicate with the pastors. Uh, I know that a lot of you just say, who doesn't love them? They're such a lovable um, couple. So I know a lot of you have questions, and, and we are diligently just trying to stay out ahead and find out um, what we can um, do to serve them. Um, Janet Jager has been just uh, instrumental in just leading the charge to serve them, so you can communicate with her. Um, if the Lord lays anything on your heart just in the immediate, we would love to help them in the immediate, and we would love to help them in the long term. So um, feel free to be generous towards them, um, to bring them a meal, to send them phone calls, to shoot them a text, to help out financially, and then as the, um, their bigger needs become known. Um, but um, Pastor Tim, you were just over there visiting uh, in the hospital. Can you come up and give us just a, uh, a quick report? Thank you for making it back to be able to do that. Thanks, brother. Um, before we um, move on, um, Al, would you uh, just come up and, uh, and give thanks that this is not a heart attack and continue to uh, pray for uh, Ken and then we'll get into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do love Ken and Deb. We love you more. And you love them more. Yeah. And Lord, throughout uh, all these things, even this day on their anniversary, to have these things occur just reminds us of how we need to depend entirely on you, your care, your love, your comfort. We can only rest because we rest in you. Yeah. We thank you that you know, even in the circumstances that Ken, though hospitalized, 
it's now more serious than it is at this point. We do pray for the cancer, for your healing touch upon him as he goes through radiation and the prospect of chemotherapy. Lord, you can use medication. You can use your words to touch him, to comfort him, and then. And help us as a body just to see how we can be your hands, your feet, to come alongside of them and lift them up as brothers and sisters we pray. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. Well, it's not very often that I can say this um, in teaching Actually, I've never been able to say this, but if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, turn to page one. And um, <laughs> So if you're not real skilled in finding your way around the Bible, um, I think you're going to nail this one today. Um, and if you want to open up your bulletin and, and look at the questions that are in there, do, do you see all of those questions? Um, that's because I want you to draw a picture of what existed um, in, in verse 1. And not really, it's just blankness. And we're going to talk about what blankness looked like as we get into this. So um, a little disclaimer, there is no way around doing an introduction message. Um, I always feel so insecure when I do introduction messages um, because they're very, uh, very information factual basis. Is there anybody here that actually likes intro, intro messages? Because um, I always feel like nobody likes them. So can I? All right. So we, we have at least 10 of you. So that's, that's good. If the other ones um, can just follow along anyway, that, that would be great. Um, but not only can you not avoid an intro, you really can't avoid one when you're introducing the beginning of a book. But when you're introducing the book that begins every Thing, um, then you really have to go through quite a bit of background material. So um, we plan our series intentionally and, and prayerfully, and as we flip the calendar to 2019 from 2018, and we begin another year, we are excited to begin this new series appropriately called Beginnings. Um, th that's actually what the name Genesis means. It means beginnings. It's named after the phrase um, that begins the book of the Bible in the beginning, Bireshit Elohim, in the beginning God. And it's exciting to talk about beginnings, the beginning of God's story, the, the beginning of creation, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of our ability to have a relationship with God, the beginning of God creating a plan to, to bring fallen man back to himself. And this idea of beginnings um, creates excitement. Not only is it fascinating, but because it makes us think of new beginnings. How many of you are grateful that our God is a God of new beginnings? I mean, that, it's the essence of our faith, right? That 
Apart from him, we were doomed. But our God loved us and sent his one and only son for us so that we might have a new beginning. Um, How many of you have ever felt like you needed a do-over, a start-over, a redo, the ability to push reset, a new beginning? Um, Man, that's what draws our hearts to Christ. I, mean, I know that it's, we only love because he first loved us, but in my testimony, I, I came to Christ because this world beat the snot out of me. And, and I tried everything that I could figure out to seek pleasure in every single way. I was, I was a hedonist of hedonists, and it, and it just wasn't working. And really, um, I didn't have an altar call moment. I didn't pray a sinner's prayer. My beginning was just sitting in a rehab facility saying, God, I, I need a new beginning. I need to start anew. And, and you know what? Our God is so gracious that he said, okay, you can have that new beginning. And I want to encourage every single one of you here today that he is that God of new beginnings, and he offers that to you today. If you're just tired of running on the hamster wheel of performance, and it's just not been working, you can just stop and say, God, I need you. I need a new beginning. My way does not work. But before we get too far into this, we need to do some background information and some thoughts on the approach that we're going to be taking in teaching this book. Like I said, background study is important, but it's really important in Genesis because we come from so many different backgrounds as we gather. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is going to be our approach to the book of Genesis. The approach will explain a lot um, about how we're going to approach teaching the book. And some of these are just huge items that will be elaborated on quite a bit as we go along. But um, just some things about our approach. We treat the Bible as the holy, perfect, inerrant Word of God without error and without blemish, all of it, period. We will be teaching the events of Genesis as literal historical events, even the ones that seem odd in our culture, even the ones where secularization would want us to explain away the supernatural nature of the text and our God. This is not metaphorical. I am tired of this language that makes it sound as if this is just some sort of poetic narrative that kind of tried to give primitive people an understanding of the beginnings of culture. That's hogwash. This is fact that we are teaching. We only know about the beginning because God was gracious enough to tell us in his word, and that's the way that we'll be teaching it. We believe in such things as a literal Adam. Adam was not something that was symbolic of mankind. There was a literal Adam, a literal fall, a literal garden, a literal sin, 
a literal flood, a literal creation, a literal establishment of the literal covenant of marriage between a literal man and literal woman. And that's the way it's going to be taught. Amen? Um, we make no apologies for God's word. Um, over-secularization of the scriptures has taught us to do this. We have God's word, and then we have our logic. And we take our logic, and we use it as the prism through which to view this book. We are going to be flipping the script on that, and it's the scriptures that give us the prism through which to see all other things. As it says in Psalms 11, verse 1, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we are teaching this as foundational in every way. So we make no apologies for that. We believe that Genesis breaks into two very non-symmetrical parts. And we'll be teaching that. There's Genesis 1 and 2, the world before sin, perfection, and then there's everything else. That's not just Genesis. That's the story of all of Scripture. There, there was the world before sin entered, and then everything else that's come after. And we will be teaching a redemptive, gospel-centered approach to Genesis because from Genesis 3.15, the Protevangelon, the first gospel, that is the way that the Bible presents itself. I would also like to share with you how we will not be teaching the book of Genesis because I think that that is fruitful. We are not here to do battle with Charles Darwin and evolutionary biology. This book is not about that. And it's a shame that that is what this book has been reduced to. Um, these first 12 chapters are one of the most, if not the most beautiful poetic narratives ever to be written, and they have been reduced to some sort of argument with some 19th century scientist. Um, I want to ask you a question. Do you really think that God had Charles Darwin in mind when he inspired Moses to write this book? This book is so much bigger than that. So if you came here and you've been hearing, we're going to teach through Genesis, and, and, and you want there to be this approach of, of how we are going to take on all of these evolutionary theory, the Bible doesn't do that. So if we're saying that they are inserting things into the Bible that wasn't there, aren't we doing the same thing? When we teach the Bible, God is telling you a story about himself, and that's enough. Um, some other things about how we're not going to be teaching this. We're not teaching this to do apologetics. Not that I'm against apologetics. And there will be some apologetics that naturally come across. Apologetics just means a defense of the faith. But I'm not going to be talking about the accuracy or inaccuracy of carbon dating. I don't care. 
Um, but we're not going to be talking about geographical evidences of a global flood, the teleological, ontological, or cosmological arguments for the existence of God or any of that other stuff. Um, not that there's no value in that, but that is not why God wrote the book. So we want to stick to the text. And, and when it's far too often reduced to that, God gave us this book about himself so that we can know the God of the universe not so that we could begin to be able to refine our cosmological argument of God's existence. Listen, God does not feel the need to prove his existence. We're going to get into that, but God doesn't start the book saying, in the beginning, well, let me tell you, here's some four flashy points where you could prove to your unbelieving friends that I exist. God starts off with his self-existence and proclaims it unapologetically. So, so will we. We are not preaching character studies about the patriarchs and telling you to go be like Abraham. That kind of teaching misses the whole point of the Bible. And besides, why would I want to tell you to be like a man who not once, but twice sold his wife into slavery because he was a wuss and he was afraid of what would happen to him. And any of you guys that feel the need to be Abraham defenders on that one, or if you think my language is too strong, you go try to sell your wife into slavery because you're afraid of what somebody might think about you. And you know what? I call you a wuss too. Um, so why would we teach to go be like this man who deceived his elderly father to go steal a birthright? Why would we teach you to go and be like these guys that threw their brother into a pit and sold him to a band of Ishmaelites out of jealousy? Why would we teach you to go be like the other guy who had an affair with his son's widow? The point of Genesis is not to tell people to be more like these knucklehead sinners. All of those knucklehead sinners need the Redeemer that was the point of Genesis. That's the point of the book. When we teach, go be like Abraham, oh, but leave this part out. Go be like Noah, kids, except that part where he gets drunk and, and passes out. Don't, don't be like that. We wonder why it sends a confusing message to our children. And lastly, we're not teaching about a bunch of heroes. These people are not heroes. There's one hero in the Bible. And what's his name? Thank you. So now that we've explained our approach a little bit, let's get into some stuff that we usually associate with background study. The author, the author has traditionally been seen as Moses. In recent years, people have tried to cast doubt on Mosaic authorship, but I'm just going to be frank with you. In recent years, people have tried to cast doubt on everything. And I think the reason is pretty simple. People are really prideful, and they like to try to sound smarter than the next guy by coming up with some wild theory that will give them more attention in academic arenas, and sheeple love to just gobble that garbage up. So 
not only, uh, another reason is because people are prideful and we're by nature rebels. So if we can cast doubt, then we can cast doubt on our need to obey it. And wasn't that the serpent's very first tactic in the garden to begin with? Let me undermine the reliability of what God has said because once I undermine the reliability of it, I undermine the authority of it, and now I'm able to undermine your call to obedience of it. Uh, There are so many more reasons I could give for Mosaic authorship, but the biggest reason that I'm going to give is over and over and over Jesus stated that he believed that Moses wrote this. He says in every one of the four Gospels, he just refers to this as Moses. Sometimes he doesn't even refer to the book itself. He just shorthand says, what does Moses tell you? The date, uh, although this book goes all the way back to explain the origins of time, it was written during a finite time in history, it was written somewhere between 1500 and 1300 BC. I hold to the view that it was written 1440 BC based on some of the context clues regarding the Egyptian Empire compared against Egyptian history and because some of the reference dates in Acts chapter 6 in Stephen's sermon where he refers back to the Exodus, you're able to date the book somewhere around 1440 BC. The theme. I've been going through several commentaries to look at different thematic statements. But if you have the ESV study Bible out there, I think it had the, the best treatment I've seen of it. I've got it projected up behind me. The theme of Genesis is creation, sin, and recreation. So shortly said, if you just want a short theme of Genesis, the theme of Genesis is creation, sin, and recreation, longer statement, it tells how God created the world is very good, but that it was destroyed in the flood, and as a result of man's disobedience, the new world after the flood was also spoiled by human sin, chapter 11, Babel, the call of Abraham, through whom all the nations would be blessed, gives hope that God's purpose will eventually be realized through Abraham's descendants, meaning Jesus, and we see a prophecy of that the end of the book in chapter 49. Um, Derek Kidner, a great scholar, says it like this. Um, Actually, before I get into that, um, one last piece of background, because this is a little bit more of a purpose than a theme. Um, But Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is setting himself apart as unique, holy, and other than. In a time where all of the surrounding nations believed in pantheism and pagan practices and multiple gods created in man's image, the book of Genesis stands unique amongst any piece of literature from that culture. If you were just to look at it as a literary piece, it stands unique. It's proclaiming one God who has created man in his image, not a man-made deity who was created in our image. So Kidner says it like this. He says, it's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible, for this word dominates the whole chapter and catches the eye at every point of the page. It is used some 35 times as many verses as there are in this chapter. So after all of that background stuff, 
we are now able to get into the big idea of the passage. Our passage will just be one verse, because it's all we'll have time to sufficiently dig into today, but it's a very foundationally important verse. Um, The big idea is that the Bible begins and ends with God. And all of the story in between is about God. So where do we fit in? Listen to this. This is important. We find ourselves as we explore God's story. But as we look at this idea of beginnings, if we go to God's story looking for ourselves, we'll find some things about ourselves and some facts about God. But if we go to God's story looking to see God, we'll find God. And in him, we'll find our true selves. For as Paul said in Acts 17, quoting the Epicurean philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. So let's jump in. In the beginning, God. So we are talking about origins here. And as we talk about origins, it's clear this is a book about God. The whole thing is a God story. And God establishes himself from the very beginning. Next week, we're going to go one word further into our text. We're going to crawl through these first couple. And we're going to get into in the beginning, God created. But this week, we're talking about everything that happened before all of that. That God is the only thing that pre-existed the beginning. I want you, I've been trying to do this all week. I've not been able to successfully do it. Try to successfully wrap your minds around nothing. One of the tools that I I used to use in evangelism, I remember doing this, uh, I went down to West Virginia on a mission trip, and we had a bunch of kids, and I I was proving to them that God must be the creator, and I'll do this, I'll do this little exercise with you, that that not only must he be the creator, but he must have created the way that he said, I, I told them, create anything, I'll wait, just create something, create a new color. Create just anything that doesn't exist. And and they would tell me things like a unicorn. And I'd say, well, that's, you didn't create that. You just took a horse and you plopped a triangle on top of its head. That wasn't creating. Um, or, Or they would tell me about these different variations of things. But all they could really do was work off of that which has already been created and then give you some adaptation on it. Because we can't create anything. We are created. So now, with that in mind, try to take your minds backwards and and, and think about nothing. And when you think about nothing, I would imagine, who here thinks about space when they try to think about nothing? Right? Don't be embarrassed. I I think that's where a lot of people's... Who just goes to like a black screen, like on the end of a movie, when you try to think about nothing? But what's the problem with... Either of those. They're both still something, right? So even your nothing is still something. Um, Even just infinite space, like science suggests, which is odd to me that things could, infinite space could just pre-exist itself. Um, But infinite space 
is still something. So our text begins with this idea that at one time there was nothing. But at that entire time existed this triune God existing in perfect unity with himself within the Godhead, completely outside of time and space. Because try to wrap your minds around this. Time or space hadn't been created yet. So he was pre-existing these things, existing outside of those things. The best that we can think about, I'm going to draw this on my whiteboard over here because I forgot to bring it up, is a ray, right? Something with a, a dot, a finite starting point. And then maybe if we really, really just try to drench ourselves in eschatological theology, we could think about eternity, future. Um, so that ray can keep going and going. But there's not one of you that can think of what existed before that dot, before that in the beginning God, because God is the only one that pre-existed that. So as we dig into the language, I want to point out um, just a couple of things, and then I'll give you some, uh, show you a cool video, some application, we'll wrap up. Um, notice that it's not in the beginning God's, plural. And that's what sets this narrative apart, and that importance cannot be overstated. I want you guys to listen to the beginning of the Babylonian creation narrative. I have it projected up behind because I know that all of you enjoy Babylonian creation literature, so I don't want you to leave here without it. Um, but this was written at the... This is contemporary. This is why I picked this. This is contemporary with the writing of the Bible. The Lord spread out his net and encircled her. The ill wind he had held behind him, he released in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow, and he thrust the ill wind so she could not close her lips. The raging winds bloated her belly. Her insides were stopped up. She gaped her mouth wide. He shot off the arrow. It broke upon her belly. It cut to her innards. It pierced the heart. He subdued her, snuffed out her life. So you got this one God killing this other God. He flung down her carcass and then he took stand upon it. He split her in two like a fish for drying, which is interesting because according to their narrative, the fish hadn't even been created yet. Half of her set up to make as a cover heaven and he stretched out the hide and assigned watchmen and ordered them not to let her waters escape. He crossed the heavens and expected its firmament. Marduk next made positions for the great gods he established in the constellations and the stars, and then he made the moon appear. How altogether different is our God? I mean, I read that, and I'm not even trying to poke, poke fun, but then I read the holiness of our scriptures holiness of our God and how altogether distinct he is. When the whole world was creating narratives and multiple gods to meet their multiple desires and their multiple lusts, we have this one supreme being who stands alone. It's almost easy to take this for granted, isn't it? This idea of there being one God. If you've been around church for years, 
You might even just read right over this. But consider, if what I just read to you was what you were used to hearing in the ancient world, consider how mind-blowing it would be to just hear the statement, in the beginning, God. There's this one true God. And in the beginning, God. Consider hearing Moses penning these words. I want you to think through history for a second. When Moses was writing this, the Israelites were just coming out of Egypt where there were many gods and ten plagues just came in and systematically just dismantled every single one of these Egyptian deities. And then, in the midst of that, this story is rewritten. And in the beginning... God. You hear this declaration, our God is the true God. This is radical. Look, there is no such thing as monotheism back then. You can, you can read over this because you can think through, oh, there's Judaism, there's Islam, there's Christianity. 75% of the world exists in monotheistic cultures. 0% of the world was monotheistic at that time. And Moses is not only declaring that there is only one God, he's saying that it's the one true God and that this one God predates all things. Also notice that it does not say in the beginning man. This shows you this is not a book about man. This is God's story. Humanism starts off with man and then tries to explain everything through rational senses from the existence and viewpoint of man. And guess what? It fails to do so. Humanism will never give you an acceptable creation narrative. But the Bible starts off with God and presupposes that his existence, and it does not exist, the existence does not exist apart from God. That's a hard sentence to say. Existence does not exist apart from God. God does not just predate existence, he does not only just make sense of existence, what this statement is saying is God is existence. There is no existence apart from him. In the beginning, God. And then I've got one more point before I give you some things to make practical. Notice that it makes no apologies for God being God and does not feel the need to prove his existence or sovereignty over all of creation. This is something that is called presuppositionalism. Fancy word that you're going to leave here with today, but I want to hear you say it so that you know it. Say presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism. All right, now you could just all forget it like you're going to. But, but we presuppositionalism is the, this belief that we God presupposes that there's God, so we could just start off with God. We don't have to start off by proving that there is God. We, make, we waste so much time trying to prove the existence of God when God doesn't even start off his word trying to prove the existence of God. He simply is. How awesome is that? He simply is. And that's his starting point. So I want to begin to make this practical. The reason that I'm taking a whole message just to state that this book begins with God, is completely about God, is because most of the teachings that I hear from the Bible make it sound like the Bible is a story about man. 
who and what is the Bible truly about? Is it about what you need to do so that you could go and be a better person? Or is it about God? And is it about the redemptive story of God bringing a people into relationship with himself because you couldn't go and be a better person? When you come to church, do you come to hear a message about you and what you must do? Or do you come to hear about him and who he is? And even though I've shown this video like three times, it should be shown once a year because it's that good and it's trying to say everything I just said in 30 minutes in three minutes, so please cue the video. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended and after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically, he was saying, everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David Black basically about you and how you feel like David Black or basically about him, the one who really took over and made the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible and you know, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden, much tougher. And his obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our good. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar, go into the world in the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, who was truly sacrificed for us all. God and said to Abraham, because you did not withhold your son from the son whom you love from Now we have to go to the cross and say, God, now we know that you love me. Because you did not withhold your son from the son whom you love from Jesus is the true and better Jacob. Wrestling with the blow of justice we deserve, so we like Jacob all receive the Lord's grace. That way us up in this land. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betray the soul and uses his power to save. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's a truly innocent sufferer who managed to speak for and save his friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never looked at a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, and when I perish, I'll perish, mm. to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out of the storm so we can be brought in. He's the real passive lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true life, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. 
How, how good is that? How good is that? <laughs> Every single time, I, I, the Esther one gets me. The, he doesn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I perish, I'll perish. So a couple of questions for you as we prepare our hearts for communion. How does God's narrative match your narrative? Is God truly the beginning? When you tell your story, does it start off with you or does it start off with God? That's, that's really a picture of Christian maturity. I remember when I used to tell my testimony, it went something like this. I was such a bad dude that hell itself spat me out. And, um, you know, here is just uh, what a rebel I was. And I did this and I did that. And, uh, and I got in trouble this way. And then God saved me. Amen. Um, who's that story about? That's a 20-minute story about me with God punctuated at the end. So when you tell your story, whose story is it? When you share your testimony, is it about what you have done or is it about God and how God showed up because you were incapable? Uh, when you look at the Bible, is it about you and what you must do or is it about communing with the God of the universe? When you begin your day, as we talk about beginnings, does God show up first when you wake up? How about the beginning of your treasure? Does God show up first in your bank account? Is God truly the hero of your story? God, thank you for being the hero of the story. And God, thank you that now we get to celebrate the hero who came, suffered and died in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.